Matthew 19, Peter answered him, speaking of Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, hide me behind the cross. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Speak to each heart just what they need to hear and we'll give you all the glory for every good eternal thing that happens here today. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message is The Generosity of God. First, I want you to think about this statement, the last shall be first. So we've been doing parables, and we did the parable of the sower, and after Jesus gives this cryptic parable the disciples go to him and they say, what does this mean? And we have right from Jesus what the parable meant. And then we did the wheats and the weeds. And once again, the disciples go to him privately and we have no question about what it means because Jesus himself says, this is what it means. Well, this one, we don't have that. Jesus says, the last will be first, the first will be last. We don't have any inner circle explanation of what this means. And so, but it is interesting 
This parable is only in Matthew's gospel. Now, if you remember, Matthew's audience is the Jewish people. And so I'm just going to give you my take on the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So he says to Peter, you guys are going to have 12 thrones in the renewal. The renewal is... Uh, the messianic kingdom that had been promised in the Old Testament where Messiah will reign on this earth and Israel will be the head of the nations and the glory of the Lord will fill the whole earth. It was promised in Daniel chapter 2, 44 and 45 that the stone that was uh, made without hands would come and crash the statue of all of the kingdoms of men and would replace it and only the kingdom of God would stand and the Messiah would rule on the earth. And Jesus said, everything that is promised is going to happen. And then he says this, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And then he says, for the kingdom of God is like. Now, in our Bible, it's the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20, but that's not how it is in the original. There are no chapters. There are no divisions. This is the explanation of what the first will be last and the last will be first is. So it turns out that those chosen first, the Jews, are actually, I mean, all of the disciples are Jews. So some came in first, but most are going to come in last. Here is Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul says, this is a mystery. Not in something that's unknowable, but something that previously has been veiled from the human race. He is now explaining what God's hidden plan was, and the hidden plan was this. Even though God chose Israel first and loves Israel, the response to the gospel is going to be that the Gentiles will actually come in first. But it's not because God has forgotten Israel. They will eventually come in too, and the, the Gentiles and the Jews will make one bride in the end. So this is the mystery that those chosen last are going to be, are going to come in first. So there is an Old Testament guy named Jacob who foreshadows the bride. Jacob comes from his family to, to, the, to the place where his relatives are to get a wife. And he comes to this well and he sees his cousin Rachel and immediately chooses her. And he goes to her, her dad Laban and says, what, what do I need to do for, 
for Rachel. I want to take Rachel as my, my bride, and I have nothing to give. And so he says, you work seven years, and Rachel will be your bride. So Jacob works for the one that he chose for seven years. And now it is wedding day, and he is so excited. But Laban takes the older sister named Leah and sneaks her in under the veil, and they consummate the wedding, and in the next morning when Jacob wakes up, it's Leah, not Rachel. And he goes back to to Laban and says, what are you doing? He says, oh, there's a custom we have I I forgot to tell you about. Um, We always marry the older, the older sister always has to be married first. He said, but don't worry, you'll get, you'll get to marry Rachel too. And so a week goes past and then he marries Rachel as well. And so Jacob's bride is both Rachel and Leah. And this, this foreshadows that the bride will be made up of Jews and Gentiles. But God, in a mystery, <laughs> slipped in. He's the father of both, the Jews and the Gentiles. And the older was married before the younger And that's just how God did it. And it's foreshadowed there. The first first chosen will be the last to come in, and the last chosen will come in first. Pastor Tom, I am so glad that you have time to sit around your office and think about these theological (laughs) things. And wow, wow, that's, that's impressive. But we, is there anything in here for me? Is there, anything, is there anything that will help my life today? Is there anything that Jesus has in this parable that is for me right now? And the answer is, there's three things. All right, so here you go. Here's your take home from this parable. Number one, time is short. Make the most of it. They think the Messiah is going to bring the eternal kingdom that will, that will, never, uh, that will last forever. And Jesus says, um, I know what you think. He, he knows what you think, but that's not how the kingdom's coming right now. Right now, the kingdom can be, par- can be compared to day laborers. Now, a day laborer is someone who works just for that day and gets paid that day. This is not a long-term employee. This is someone that you just hire and they work one day and they get paid right at the end of the day. Some of them, you saw in the, in the parable, only work one hour and get paid right away. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom is going to be like right now. We are in a time right now that is very, very brief. You say, well, Pastor Tom, you know, some people are living to 100 years. 100 years sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Unless you compare it to eternity. The the book of James says our life is a vapor. When we look back on it, we were like, oh my, we were only alive for just that little time for all of eternity. Yet the importance of this time is incredible. We live during a day of harvest. It is harvest time. 
The, the point in this parable, it, the, the, the time that you need day laborers is during the harvest. There is plenty of work. When the harvest is ready, it needs to come in right now or it's going to be lost. So you grab anybody you can at any time and you put them to work. We need to bring the harvest in. We are in a time right now. It's very unique. It is the day of God's favor. It is the harvest all are welcome to come and be saved. This is a day of God's generosity towards human beings. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 4. He said, we must do the works who sent me while it is day, for the night is coming when nobody can work. Now, does that mean we're not going to work in heaven? No, nope. we'll all have jobs in heaven. We'll all have very... Heaven will be amazing, it'll be fulfilling, and, and those that have been faithful over one city will be over tens. Of, I mean, it's going to be amazing. We don't grasp all of it, but I know this. We will be busy. It won't be just harps on clouds. Um, so what does he mean when the night is coming, when no man can work? This is the works of redemption. The works of redemption are for right now. There is a night of judgment coming when it will be too late for people to get saved. And whatever, whoever's not saved, that, the harvest will just be lost. Jesus said, we need to be about this right now. Time is short. Make the most of your time. So I spent 15 years, Alice and I and our, my family spent 15 years in Minnesota, two different churches, both of them farming communities. So when you live in a farming community, you find out about the harvest. When it's harvest time, that's all that's happening. They harvest all day, all night. They, they got lights now on their tractors. You bring the harvest in. There is an urgency about the harvest. I told you a few weeks ago about uh, the passing of a very dear friend named Don Hansen. She had a brain aneurysm at 68. Her and Cliff, very good friends. We, we vacationed there in August. And so we were back there for the funeral a few weeks ago. And um, I was concerned about Cliff. Um, her, her, their, their boys were there. And I'm like, you know, Cliff is clearly grieving. And how long are you guys going to stay? How long can you guys stay? And they're like, well, actually, we are, we're going back tomorrow, which was Sunday, but it wouldn't help that much if we're here anyway because their dad, he's going to be harvesting. He rents his fields out now, so it's not even his harvest. But he works for the people that he rents his, his field out to because it's harvest. So even though he's grieving, even though he's going through difficulties of his own, there's something going on called the harvest that he needs to engage with. And that's what's going on on this planet. Look at John chapter 4, verse 35. Jesus says, don't say four months and then the harvest. Lift up your eyes, for they are white for harvest right now. Now, this is in context of Jesus with this Samaritan woman. In, in John chapter 4. Here's the story of the Samaritan woman. She has been married five times. She's currently living in a very religious culture. She's living with a guy that she is not married to. 
This woman is disappointed with her life. She's broken in her life and she's living in isolation and shame. Every commentator agrees on this. You either go get water early in the morning or you go late at night when, it, when the sun's not shining. She's there at noon. Why? Because she's sick of everybody making fun of her. She's sick of the isolation. She's sick of the rejection. So she goes when she knows no one else will go. And Jesus says, I have to go to Samaria. I've got an appointment. Jesus meets this lady. He looks past all of the mess and he says, if you would ask me, I'd give you living water that would truly satisfy you. And she says, give me this water. And, and, and so he, he, they, they have a little dialogue. He tells her about his life. And she says, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us. He'll tell us what we're supposed to do. And Jesus, who makes everybody else figure out that he is the Messiah. Jesus, who you need to get a revelation from the Father to know that he's the Messiah. Jesus says to this woman, uh, I'm him. You're looking at him. Jesus cares about people, guys. When, when everybody else has given up on a person, Jesus still loves them. When, when life has taken its toll, when shame is covering people, and, and, and they, they're living in isolation, when they're in deep, dark addiction, when they're in, in, in this stuff that doesn't satisfy, but they're addicted to, and, and everybody else has given up on them, Jesus is looking at them and saying, I want them. I love them. I want to touch them. Jesus says this to his disciples. The people that I want to save are all around you. If you just lift up your eyes and look. Well, I want, I want my kids to be saved. I want my grandkids to be saved. I want, I want these people that I've been praying for, I want them to be saved. God wants them saved too, but maybe it's not their time right now. So could you love maybe people that God loves that you don't love right now? that are all around you? Could we lift up our eyes and take an interest in somebody that we don't even know and, and say, God, God knows you and God loves you and God wants to do something for you? Could we, could we be a little less scheduled and a little less with our head down and it's us four and no more and we're just trying to control our own life and just, just live a little more open and recognize there's a harvest that's going on right now. And there are people all around that need Jesus. And God, open up my heart of how to love the people around me. God, I want to be part of the harvest. Time is short. Make the most of it. It's the first take home. Here's your second one. Life isn't fair. Don't worry about it. So these guys are keeping an eye on the owner. And they see what these guys are getting paid. They're getting paid for a full day's wage. And so as they're getting their money and they realize they've worked one hour, I've worked eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. I'm waiting to get, get, get what I, I can't wait to see what I'm going to get. If he got a whole denarius, what well, denarius was a full day's wage. If he got a full day's wage, I can't wait to see what I get. So when they get the same pay, they are like, uh, it's not fair. Not right. What you are doing is not 
Right. And here's, here's, the, here's what the landowner says. I have done no injustice to you. You agreed to work for this denarius, and I'm giving you your denarius. It's my money. Can I do with it what I want to do? Whatever I want to? Are you, are you envious? One translation, jealous. One translation, angry. The literal Greek words is, is your eye evil? Because I'm generous. So you ask yourself, why did, why did he give that guy a full day's pay when he only worked one hour? Have you ever thought of this? Maybe he's got information about that guy and that family that, that the other workers don't have. Maybe, maybe they've got a full family, and if he only paid him for one hour, most of the family wouldn't eat that day. That for the whole family to eat, he needs to give them a full day's wage, even though they were only there one hour. What if he's got information about these other workers that, that these first workers don't have? And so there is a really good reason for him to be as generous as he is being. What if that's the case? And notice that he doesn't feel responsible to give an explanation of why he's being generous to them. He's like, why is that any of your business? This, it's my money, I'm doing what I want to, and don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Okay, so let's think about this. We don't really know what's going on here, but now let's talk about God. Let me tell you a few things about God that are absolutely for sure, absolutely certain. God does know what's going on in everybody's life. He knows what everybody needs. He's got information that is not available to you. He knows every need. He knows the depths of every need. He knows everybody that needs a touch. He needs everybody that needs a healing, everybody that needs a blessing. He knows everything. That's for sure. Here's the second thing that's absolutely sure. He doesn't feel like he needs to give an account for you, to you, of what he does. He doesn't feel like, you think it's not fair, so I need to explain all that I'm doing to you. Life isn't fair. <laughs> Nothing is truer than that. From a human perspective, life is not fair. God says this to you and to me. Don't worry about it. I've got this. For 39 chapters, all Job is saying is, I wish I could get an audience with God. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. I would tell him it's not fair. He would, he, I, I would make my case before him, and he would have to agree with me that it's not fair. And then God shows up. And for two chapters, God speaks to Job about who God is and about who Job is. And he basically says this to Job. Every question you're asking is above your pay grade. And in Job 42, 5 and 6, we get Job's response. He says, I had heard of you, and now I have seen you, and I repent in dust cloth and ashes. And guess what? God never does fill him in on what, what's going on. In John chapter 21, we've got this tremendously intimate time of 
Jesus restoring Peter. And Peter, do you love me? Uh, I still want you to feed my sheep and shepherd my flock and tend my lambs. And, and, and Jesus, who has witnessed the denial and the shallowness of Peter's love, says, the day is coming when you will give your life for me, Peter. You, you are going to do this. You're going you're gonna to be all in. You're, I, I, you and I are going to do this together. And here's Peter's response to this tremendous encounter of intimacy. What about him? John, John, is, John is there, and John and Peter's always had this thing with John. In chapter 20, they race to the tomb together, and John has to say, and I won. Uh, we, we, we ran to the tomb, and I won. Anyway, there, so there's this competition going, and what about him? What's going to happen with him? And here's what Jesus said to him, and he's saying it to you, too. Whether he lives or dies, what's that to you? You follow me. You follow me. A lot of the misery that's on this planet comes when we're judging what's how, that somebody else is getting better than me or they're over me. Or, and we, you got you to gotta, you gotta stay in your lane. So uh, I, had a, I had an experience in 2011 and uh, this, this woman came into my office and she said, Pastor Tom, I've had such a tremendous breakthrough in my life. I need to tell you about it. And she began to tell how she was an angry woman. And God did something in this seminar she went to that exposed that she was angry and that her anger was a self-imposed ceiling that she had put on her spiritual life, that she literally could not go any farther because of her anger, and that it was self-imposed. God didn't put it there. She put this ceiling on her own life. And she said, Pastor Tom, I don't want a ceiling on my life. She said, I am free from anger. I am no longer an angry woman. I, I am free. God can do whatever he wants in and through me. And I'm like, oh, that's such a great testimony. And we prayed and hugged, and she left. And here's what she did not know. When she said, I am an angry woman, God was speaking to me. And he said, you're an angry pastor. Now, this was very troubling to me because I was in ministry for 20 years at the time. And so she leaves and I'm just before God. And God showed me I was, I was angry about three things. And I, <laughs> you can't do more than the will of God. But I don't ever want to do less than the will of God. I want everything God has for me. The idea that I had a self-imposed ceiling was horrifying to me. I wanted to get whatever it is, I want to deal with it. And one of the things that I was angry about was the injustice that is the economic injustice of America. That, that the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer and not that I think that a CEO shouldn't be paid more. They're taking more risk. They're, they've got more responsibilities. I absolutely think they should get paid more. But it's the, the amounts were just so inordinate. Like a CEO would be making more than the entire workforce. And, and, and just it's just so wrong that one would be so rich and everybody else is struggling to get by. And then, of course, you look at the sports Figures and these people are getting paid millions and millions of dollars to play one game. Are you kidding me? They're getting paid ten thousand dollars a second for playing. I mean, just 
crazy inequities. And, and I just kind of carried that. And, and I, I brought this anger before the Lord. And I just felt a couple things became very clear to me. Number one, I had no idea what they were doing with that money. I mean, sometimes you know they've got these huge charitable trusts that they have set up and that their income is helping all kinds of people. And, and so they're getting all this money, but they're, they're giving tons of money. And point is this, I didn't know what people were doing with that money. It's about my pay grade. So I'm judging them, even though I don't know what they're doing with all of that money that's come into their hands. And then the second thing came to me. That one day, they will give an account to God for what they did with their privilege. That everybody is accountable to God and responsible before God with what they do with the resources they have. Did you notice that they're never going to be accountable to me for what they did with that money? It's between them and God. And so I was all worked up about something that really, it didn't involve me. If God has made a world that allows them to get paid all that money, then that's, whatever he wants to do, it's his. He can do whatever he wants to. And I let go of my anger. The ceiling came off. Do you have a self-imposed ceiling because you've been everybody else's judge? Do you got a self-imposed ceiling because you've been God's judge? Here's the problem with arguing with God. It's really frustrating. He's always right. He's always right. He can't always explain why he's right. But trust me on this. He's always right. And it's just better to say right away, I don't know why you're right, but I know you're right. And so God, I trust you. Life isn't fair. Don't worry about it. And then lastly, God is good. Expect him to be generous to you. God is good. Now you got to make the application. Expect him to be generous to you. So here's, here's Peter. We've just seen the rich young ruler leave Jesus because he's got so much. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, it's going to be really difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be harder for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven. Well, the Jews thought the rich people were the most favored by God. And Peter's like, then who can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, who can be saved? Here's what Jesus said. With man, it's impossible. This is the beginning of salvation. For anybody that's hearing me today, you have to come to this. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't be sincere enough. You can't be moral enough. God's standard is too high. His holiness is too white. No one can be saved by themselves. It's impossible for mankind to save himself. Then Jesus says, But with God, all things are possible. And then he looks, and then Peter says, what about us? We have left everything for you. We're following you around. We've We've given everything we have. 
for your cause. And Jesus says this, Peter, I can just picture him smiling. Anybody that's left anything for me, we're keeping track. You're going to get a hundred times back. It will be worth it. Anything you sold for me, anything you gave up for me, any temptation you had to say no to, whatever you did for me, it will be rewarded 100 times. Peter, I will be generous to you. And then, not just that, I'm going to be generous to the Jews. I have not forgotten the Jews. There will be a millennial kingdom. I will put Israel at the head of the nations. Every promise that I made to Israel is true. I will be seen as generous to Israel. But I'm also going to be generous to the Gentiles. And here's how he pictures the Gentiles. Those that are just standing around doing nothing. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to love on them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them into the family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. I am a generous God, and I'm going to be generous to people. One of the first verses that I memorize is Psalm 8411. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. You need to settle this deep in your heart. God is not a withholder. He's a giver. God loves you. And if it seems like he's withholding something, it's because you're not ready for it quite yet. He, he is a giver. He wants to give to you. He wants to show his generosity to you. It's just who he is. The gospel is all about the generosity of God. Look at this. Here's Romans eleven thirty five. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? It's really important that you and I understand that God doesn't owe us. He doesn't owe you because you've been loving or because you've served or because you've given or because you've sacrificed or because you've suffered. God is not in your debt. Sorry about that. But, but that, that, will, that thought will really hinder you. God doesn't owe you. And in fact, if you get what you deserve The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What we've earned is death. And death is more than physical death in the Bible. It is spiritual death. It is separation from God. Trust me, you don't want to get what you deserve. That's the beginning of the gospel, is is owning that. So here's the second part. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Here's the same verse out of the NASB. That was the NIV. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So this is, this is just unbelievable. But listen to this. So the God who owes you nothing wants to give you everything. But he will only give those things to you on his terms. And his terms are graciously and freely. He will not give based on you, that he owes you or that you've earned something. He will only give based on his own generosity. God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave himself 
for you. That needs to be personalized. Paul said, uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You need to own that what Jesus did. He did not just for the whole world. He did it for me. He loves me. He is for me. That God that gave himself for you wants to give everything to you. That's who he is. It's insane. This is the gospel. So I want to I tell you about one of my life verses. A life verse is a verse that God gives you in the midst of circumstances that it changes you and you, you get it for the rest of your life. You get its truth for the rest of your life. So here's the story. It's 1990 and we have just found out that my dad, he's only 60 years old at the time, has prostate cancer. And they misdiagnosed it, misdiagnosed it. And so by the time they got it, it had spread everywhere. And so dad had really months to live unless there was a miracle from God. And, uh, but, but I had seen a miracle from God for my mom. My mom had breast cancer in the 80s. And, and I asked if Alice and I could pray for her. And God, she felt heat go through her. And she, she was healed. And she told everybody that she was healed. And she lived another however many years and didn't die of, die of cancer in, in 2016. Um, amazing. So I'm believing God for healing. That God wants to heal my dad. And I'm praying, I'm contending for healing. And I'm reading 2 Samuel 14, 14. One day, this is just the one-year Bible. And I'm reading, and here's what it says. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather... He devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. So two things became very evident. Number one is that this cancer was not sent from God. God doesn't send cancer to people to kill people. Cancer is just part of the human race. It's in the human DNA. It's because it's a result of the fall. God is not going around killing people. That's not his agenda. But God is the one who devises waste that the one who is banished from him will be able to come home to him. And God made it very clear to me that he wasn't going to heal my dad of the cancer, but that he was going to use the cancer to bring dad to Jesus. My dad and I were not real Close. I don't know that anybody was that close to my dad. He was, he was raised in a, in a huge family that was very, very poor. He was the oldest boy, and he was a survivor. He just, you, you, you just focused on the positive stuff, and you didn't, you didn't talk about what was. You just stayed positive, and you got through. And he was, he was a good man, and he was a religious man. He took us to church. We went to the Catholic church every single Sunday. His whole family was in church. But when I got saved, I started talking to my dad about his faith. And I knew that he didn't really believe. 
He, he was into philosophy and he did not believe Jesus was the way and that, that it, he did the religious thing, but he, he was more of a humanist that any good person will certainly go to heaven and that, you know, I was on a, in a borderline cult, whatever, which was fine. And just because of our relationship that I just knew I'm not going to be the one that's going to be able to get through to my dad. Well, so we had this, at the time I was a, a pastor here at Lake City Church, I was the, the college and career pastor, and we had a Sunday night service, and we had a prayer meeting at five o'clock before the six o'clock service, and so we would pray for an hour every Sunday night. But the way the prayer meeting went, we didn't really pray together. We were just all in the same place and everybody prayed whatever they wanted to pray. And, and so you just kind of paced or knelt or whatever and you prayed for an hour, but everybody was kind of on their own. And, and so every single Sunday night, I would pray for God to save my dad. I would pray, Jesus, do something. Save my dad, save my dad. Break in, use, the, use this cancer to save my dad. And uh, things got worse and worse and worse, and pretty soon hospice came in, and they set up a bed in our living room, and my, my dad was clearly near, near the end. And I've got, I've got five siblings, and so we would take shifts at night watching him, and um, we, you had to clean him and you know, do all of that stuff for him because it was, it was so near the end. And at that time, I had one sibling, Katie, who, who was a brilliant Christian. And she was on one night, and they had made him very comfortable. But this specific night, Katie said he was, it was like he was in a wrestling match, an unseen wrestling match. And about midnight, he cries out. Katie's sleeping on the couch, and he cries out in the middle of the night, all right, what's the barrier to Jesus? He was in a conversation with the Holy Spirit. My sister Katie came right by his side and said, Dad, and, he, and, and, and he, she told him in just a few words what the gospel was. And I'm going to pray a prayer right now, and I'm inviting you to pray it after me, Dad, if you want to give your heart to Jesus. And so she prayed a prayer out loud. He didn't pray out loud. But when she got done with the prayer, he squeezed her hand. That's on Friday night. Dad goes into a coma the next day. I, on Sunday night, I'm in the prayer meeting, the five o'clock prayer meeting. I don't know any of this. I don't, I don't have any report of what is going on with dad of, about this encounter. So I'm, I, it's just, you know, it's my time to pray for dad. So I start, and I know the time is short, so I'm, I'm going to pray hard for dad. I can't pray for dad. I, every time I go to pray for dad, this well of joy comes up inside of me. And I'm like, and all I can do is thank God. All I can do is thank God. And I'm, and I just, I'm saying to myself, I have no idea how it happened, but dad is saved. I don't know what happened, but dad is saved. I know it. And so after the service, I go to Milton, which is where we're from, go to the house, and I get in the door, and Katie said, Tommy, I've got to talk to you. And so she pulls me into the utility room. My siblings hated it when Katie and I would talk about God in front of them. And so we're in the utility room. And Katie's like, she, she explains the whole thing that happened Friday night. She said, Tommy, he squeezed my hand. 
do you think it, that's it? Do you think he's saved? And I said, Katie, I know he's saved. And I told her the story of what happened to me in the prayer meeting. Guys, I, wanna, I want you to think for just a moment about the generosity of God. It wasn't just 1159 in my dad's life. It was 1159 and 55 seconds. And God came down and saved my dad. But I also want you to, to notice the generosity that it was important for God that Katie and I knew that he was saved. That we would have that every time we thought about dad's death, every time we thought that we would have that. Isn't he good? Isn't he good? All right, I'm going to have the worship team come. We're going to have communion together. And, uh, but I want to tell one last story before we have communion. So um, a year ago, we had Ben Goodman here. Ben is a prophetic voice. He's going to be speaking here next Sunday. Do not miss next Sunday. Ben has an amazing prophetic ministry. And I had set up this region-wide meeting about revival that Ben was going to speak to and I was going to speak to what, what I believe God is speaking to the region. So I invited not just pastors, but business people that I know of in the community that carry the whole region in their heart. They're just region-wide people. And so I invited all of these people. Well, this one guy I invited, he's a retired businessman and he goes to Blackhawk and he's just... I just see him at everything. Anything that is interchurch, anything that is doing good in this community, he is there. I had never formally met him, but I'm like, that's the kind of guy that needs to come to this meeting. So I invited him, and sure enough, he came. And after, after the meeting, he, I met him at the door, and he's got tears running down his face, and he says, I've been waiting for 35 years for this meeting. Because it was about God's desire to pour out on the, our region. And we were setting up these 12 prayer, region-wide prayer meetings in 2022. And, and he's been coming to all of those prayer meetings. We have them once a month on, on a, the first Thursday. And, but last week, I saw him somewhere. He said, hey, I'd like to get together. And so we got together Tuesday. And I said, bro, I'd love to hear your story. And he told me how he got saved. It was in the the 70s, early 70s. His wife got saved first and dragged him to Elmbrook Church. Elmbrook Church, Stuart Briscoe was the pastor, but it was before they had the big building. It was just, it was in their early years. and, and, uh, And one day in church, they're having communion. And here's what Stuart Briscoe says. He says, Jesus gave everything to save you. If you are willing to give everything back to him, then you're welcome to have communion with us. And so communion is going past. And he said, I just decided I was going to be a Christian. And so I took communion. He said, but my wife didn't know it. My wife's just like, this is the ritual. And he's just going through the motions and... And so we get home, and I say to her, I said, well, you better get me a Bible because I'm a Christian now. And she's like, what? 
And from that day to this day, he's been giving everything for Jesus. So here's how we're going to do communion today. Could we stand together? We're going to start this song and sometime during the mess, during the song, I'll come back up here and we will have communion together. If you don't have the, the little cup and bread, raise your hand and our ushers will find you. And I hope an usher finds me because I don't have one. So I'm going to need one too. Um, and uh, then we will, we will have it together. But whether you are a Christian right now or not, makes no difference. Jesus has given everything for you. Doesn't matter how much you've sinned, how long you've sinned, how old you are, Jesus is looking for you today. And if you, you want to be his, he gave everything to you. You just respond by taking communion today and saying, Jesus, I give back. I give you back. What does giving everything mean? I give you my sin. I give you my failure. I give you my brokenness. I give you my future. I give you my plans. Jesus, just be my savior.